You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. It's the podcast. Podcast. Welcome to another Britflix podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today I've got with me uh, Larry Smith, Director of Photography. Larry Smith. Hello, Larry. Hi, Stuart. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. Now, I'm not going to name all your films. I'll just I'll just name some of them of the ones I really love. In ter- just just in terms of films I love, not just because you've made them. Um, but w- films you've been director of photography on that, that I love a lot are Calvary and the Guard, directed by uh, John Michael McDonough. Uh, Only God Forgives, Bronson and Fear X. I mean, Winding Refn is an absolute hero of mine. And then Kubrick's uh, Eyes Wide Shut. But obviously, your, your, for those people that know your name, your, your career, I guess, started out in the 70s working on Barry Lyndon in uh, 75 so it feels like no introduction needed but with those kind of names i just thought i'd, I'd better throw out people that that, that aren't, don't have their film history books to hand um so it's a pleasure to have you on well pleasure to be here nice to talk to you and your audience thank you thank you now it's, it's britflix and that's why uh, you as a british filmmaker are a uh, are, 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 are welcome as a guest as it were um but just for the layperson listening can you can you differentiate the job of the director from, and, and then and how you would describe the role of the, the director of photography on a feature film to people? Yeah, yeah, sure. Of course, it's uh, changed dramatically uh, since I first came into the business because of, you know, the way films are made now with much more <clears throat> input or control from the director than was normal when I first came in. Normally, you know, in the certainly in, you know, the 60s and 70s, the role of the director of photography was all-encompassing in terms of the look and the camera movement and, the, you know, and some input into the set design. Mm. Um, and you had really carte blanche to do what you wanted. And invariably, you weren't interfered with. Uh, well, certainly a, a bigger name director of photographers weren't interfered with. You know, directors directed, uh, director of photographers uh, did the lighting and the camera, etc. Production designers design. That's changed dramatically now. Whereas um, most directors want to be involved in every um, 
uh, aspect of uh, of the filmmaking process, including sometimes the the, the lighting and shot selection, etc., etc. So the variation is um, nowadays. Obviously, the directors is the overall sort of head of department. You know, of a of a movie in the sense that you know he has to work with the actors, he he has to approve the sets, he he likes to in some cases approve the lighting, what you're going to do, costume, makeup, etc. Whereas the direct photography is normally um, involved in you know lighting the set, the camera movement, the choice of lenses, hmm. and to some extent uh, involved in where you. Should shoot certain locations at what time of day where the sun is etc etc okay so so is that is that an evolution in terms of the the the, the emphasis on on the greater involvement with the director is that is that like the last 20 years or is that yeah yeah i would say so it ca- i mean i don't really know where it came from certainly a lot of um directors um that came out of commercials uh advertising that got into film kind of tended to work that way anyway. So there might be a little bit of link there. Yeah. Um, but I think it is it is partly evolution. Um, good, bad or indifferent, I'm not really sure. You know, I think uh, I think sometimes, um, uh, it, it, you know, it's hard enough to make movies today as it is. And I think, you know, um, uh, if, if, if each other department has more autonomy in what they do, I, I kind of feel that's better. But it's not necessarily the way it is with some people. It's, this is not across the board. It's it's just that is the trend. Hmm. Well, I guess I guess it's a collaborative medium, isn't it? And yes, but also yes. a film set is probably the closest working environment to the army as well. With it being ironically, yeah, well. absolutely, exactly that. Yeah, it is a collaboration, um, and of course um, you have to have that level of collaboration. It, it's I guess it's where collaboration becomes interference. Is mm. <laughs> yeah. where the line gets crossed. You know. Yeah, yeah. You're, you, you, in some ways. You're the expert, and that's why you're there. So exactly, exactly, yeah, exactly that, yeah. But you know, it is as I say, it, I'm quite lucky. I think I've been quite lucky, you know, with most of the people I work with. Um, I've always had that freedom to, um, you know, make the decisions I felt were right. So I, I'm one of the ones that can't really complain about the new, the new wave of filmmakers. Indeed, indeed. So, so in terms of. In terms of when you when you when you started, am I right in thinking you 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 came from an um, exhibition lighting background? Is that right? Is that what you're yeah, ba- basically, yes. I was working in, um, uh, you know, I, I I did an apprenticeship as an electrician, in actual fact. Okay. And then and then um, I um, I didn't really like that. I mean, I, I liked it, but I didn't like. The, the, that, that kind of work I didn't like, you know. I didn't like the cold weather in particular. And cold, no, exactly. And, cold. and so I kind of, I, I kind of fell into exhibition lighting, which was, I guess, the forerunner to advertising in a way. When you think, when you think, when I think back now, because yeah. advertising wasn't really, there, there was no real advertising as such at that period of, uh, of time and I kind of fell into it and I thought wow this is an amazing world where you get because it was quite glamorous you know you, you you know there was in those days they used to use lots of um, models almost for anything for, for you know for handing out a cup of coffee to you know to laying on the bonnet of a car you yeah. know and the motor show it says all the ideal home exhibition and I thought this was wonderful I, I'd never quite seen anything like this before and of course it had the extra element of being able to travel which I hadn't really done 
as a, you know, uh, up until that time. So I, I found this like a really interesting way. It paid very well. You built things up very quickly, then you took them down. It wasn't a, a forever job, you know, mm. uh, which made it more interesting, you know, that whole variety thing. Um, so yeah, that's basically where I kind of came from. And then, and then in a way fell into, you know, film lighting, uh, as a link to that. Mm. Did you, I mean, did you literally fall in, I mean, was, was, was the Barry Lyndon thing where you first came into it or has you already had tastes? No, 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 no. I was into it. I was in, in before that. I mean, basically what happened was that, um, years ago, uh, the, um, the electrical trade union, I think as it was then, it was the ETU, I think it was called, had a branch of, uh, had a film branch at Highbury Place hmm. in, in London. And, um, because you were in that union, you were able to go to that branch and they, you could lodge a ticket, um, to get into the film industry. And, and every now and again, you know, they have big call. In those days, of course, all, there was no such thing as four wheel studios. All the studios, like Shepperton, MGM's, EMI, as it then was, or ABPC, as it then was, rather, uh, Pinewood, were all, had made their own films. You know, they were all very, very busy mm. in terms of the amount of films that the British film industry turned out at that time, much more then than we do now. And they, of course, had people permanently employed there, you know, like, you know, gaffers and even DOPs, camera operators, you know, across the board and employed a huge amount of people. But then every now and again, they'd get sort of bigger films and then they would need more people. And um, I kind of got in that way. I got a call out one summer um, to um, to go to do a film at Shepperton right. called, the, called The Best House in London with Warren Mitchell. Uh, remember Warren Mitchell from... I do indeed, um, yeah. yeah. okay. And uh, I got called out with 40 other electricians um, and went to Shepparton. That was my first real taste uh, of, of the business. And we sat around because they had the films were starting up and they just wanted to have the labour force there. Hmm. And I sat around for like a week, didn't really do anything. We were sat in a canteen drinking tea for a week. And, but I used to walk onto the sets and walk up onto, into the, the gantry and so I could have a better view to, just to get a, a, a sort of an idea of what it was, you know, how things worked. Yeah. And, um, so I did, I, I, I worked there at Sheldon, but it wasn't very busy. I, I found it not very interesting if I'm, I wasn't stimulated by that. So I decided not to stay at Sheldon and I went back, uh, to exhibition lighting and then, a little while later, and I can't, I don't know how long later, maybe it was about a year later, I think there was a sort of a very small lighting company that started up with people that were, with a background in exhibition called Lee Lighting, mm. which you've probably heard of with two brothers, John and Benny Lee. Right. And they, they were sort of growing. At that time, the studios were beginning to, you know, shed the four wall thing. MGM's had, had, had closed. And, um, advertising was in its infancy. Um, and it was, there was just a, there was just an opening there for a young company to come in, which, which, which they were. They were, they were one of our, one or two other small companies yeah. at that time. And they drew their labor force from people in the exhibitions and also people that lived in a certain part of London. They were from West London, Notting Hill, where, where I was from originally. And, uh, that was the conduit if you like, to right. get into the mainstream um, film lighting. 
uh, which 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 I did, and they had, and they grew enormously over a very short period of time. So I worked for them for a short period of time, but then I kind of decided to be uh, to go for, to be freelance. I like the whole freelance thing, um, you know, where you can work in a particular area for a certain amount of time, then take some time off, mm. you know, that whole variety thing, uh, which is what I did. And it was about that time when I was freelance that uh, Barry Linden had started. So I went on to Barry Linden as a as a, as a freelance, just literally for all, to do two weeks' work, and a year and a half later I was still there. No, that's quite an amazing story. That yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. you go there for a week, two weeks, and yeah. you're still on the roll, eighteen a payroll, eighteen yeah. months later. Absolutely, um, absolutely. Yeah, and it, and it did extend beyond that. To be absolutely honest, I mean, it extended more or less. You know, uh, right the way through to The Shining, you know, because I was, you know, once I got to know um, um, Kubrick, he, you know, I got on very well with him. And he used to like to have me around, you know, to do things and collaborate on potential things that were coming up. I loved your uh, your analogy of referring to dealing with Kubrick as a, as like playing a, t- a tennis pro. Um, yes. <laughs> if you're quick enough to hit the ball back, he'll play with you. But if you're not, yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. And um, one of the things that um, Stanley always used to like to do after a film, after one of his movies, you know, the in-between periods where he was at his most relaxed and easygoing, and was, you know, it's like you, you and I talking now, really. Yeah. Um, he would. We would analyze. The, the the people that he didn't think did very well and the people that that he that did well you yeah. know that he thought were good and quite often because of that very fact where he would sometimes serve an ace the person at the other end never really had a chance to get their racket on it and therefore he didn't give them the opportunity to see how good they were sometimes because working around Stanley a lot of people went got went to jelly because he was such a you know, a, a, a smart intellectual man. And, you know, sometimes he would ask very, very searching questions, you know, straight off the bat, you know. And sometimes when you're not prepared for that, even if you're super smart yourself, you give a, a bad answer. You know what I mean? It's like going to an interview. You know, you come out of an interview, you've done really badly, yeah. purely because for whatever reason, you know, you just never answered this question and then you answer the next one badly and then you lost confidence. You know what I mean? And, and Stanley used to take that as a weakness and, 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 and it wasn't always a weakness and it isn't, as you well know, always a weakness. Uh, sometimes you, you can do a bad interview, you know, uh, it doesn't make you bad at what you do, uh, necessarily. But you're, when you first came across him and, and like you say, it was that week's work that, that, that developed into the, the relationship you've enjoyed. For, for mm. the next few decades, as it were, mm. yes. um, you weren't that aware of of Kubrick, the kind of master visionary director. You knew he was a filmmaker, didn't you? But yeah, that's right. You that's were, exactly right. You, you weren't that yeah. jelly-legged newbie on set, were you? That was no, no. And and basically, I I didn't really know who he was. I mean, I knew he was an American film director. Yeah. And um, and he clearly had a presence when I first met him. You know, the, the, when he came onto the set down at Wilton House in. Mm. Um, in Salisbury, um, I, I clearly you you kind of there's a, some people have an aura, and he's not a man that seeks that he ne- he wasn't a man that ever seek you know sought that yeah. uh, he just had it you know you could just see that the people around him were you know very he, he respectful of he him. He wasn't a shouter, was he, or anything like that? No, 
No, no, no, certainly not, no. He could get upset, but no, he wasn't a screamer and a shouter like yeah. other directors I can mention. Um, but I could see, but I, but I didn't, I thought, well, I'm only here for two weeks. I don't need to know too much about this guy. It was two weeks' work to me. I, it wasn't more than that, you know, and yeah. because, as I say, I didn't really, I really hadn't sort of put him on any kind of scale as to where he was. You know, I, it, it, I, you know, it's like meeting anyone. You just, oh, how, oh, you do that. Oh, great, um, fine. And you, you just do your job and you move on. It's just that you know, two weeks that then got extended to four weeks. By the way, we weren't anywhere near shooting at this stage. We were just, you know, getting sets ready and testing and doing things like this. This is which is why, you know, it took us a while to even get into the set mode. And um, so by the time I kind of really kind of got to know him to speak to him um it was probably you know a, a, a few months down the line now you know it's probably about three or four months into it when we were just beginning to shoot start shooting and we're still going out doing other tests i mean famously on that film there was the the use of the um the nasa lenses for film, correct the candlelight yeah. were you involved with that testing yes i was yeah yeah because we we all as a group had to you know, well, the, the the electrical side certainly had to, you know, provide. Even though, you know, there was candlelight, there were there were other sort of bounce lights. So we had our uh, area of that that was uh, that we 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 obviously did tests on because that's the one thing that Stanley was very strong about. He 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 was a man that never liked surprises. He always wanted to know, mm. you know, what what he was going to get, um, you know, once he started uh, shooting. So uh, we used to tense, uh, test that extensively. So in that sense, though, is, that, is it that kind of work process you went through and what you were trying to achieve? Is that something that influenced you as someone? And I think I read somewhere you're saying you like to go for the most natural look you yeah. can get, as it were. Yeah. Is, is, that, yeah. is, that, is that influenced by that experience or is it? Yeah, it's, it's very interesting because Stanley and I are really, you know, as not as not as people, but as uh, in terms of our our work process, our workflow. Yeah, we're very very different. I'm very spontaneous, and he is very. He, you mean he could have been a scientist. He could. He likes to, you know, look in every corner, look under every stone, and then come back and look again. The the fear of missing something uh, to Stanley was something that drove him. Whereas I, I, I'm I'm like, you know. I'm not someone, let's see what we get, you know. So it's quite strange, really, that we had this long relation because we were very, very different in our approach um, to filmmaking. But what I what I take and what I took away from working with Stanley was his understanding of film process. And by that, I mean, for example, on Barry Lyndon, I can't remember what the film stock we were using then. It would have probably been not much faster than 50 ASA, may have been 100. The lenses were so much slower then than than, than they are today. So, you know, you obviously needed uh, a a lot more lights and lots more time, uh, you know, that equated to time, which equates to money. You know, um, by the time we had got from Barry Lyndon to The Shining, for example, we had we had moved to 500 or 400 ASA film, which is a huge jump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, in that time, we'd had you know we'd had uh, 
HMIs were like in their infancy when we were doing Barry Lyndon. We didn't use HMIs. We used, you know, brutes, art lights and, you know, right. and t mostly tanks. But in that period, HMIs had come up um, and were replacing the uh, more conventional lights like brutes. I, I can't remember what the biggest one that was around, probably a, something like maybe a 12 kilowatt HMI. Hmm. Stanley immediately... What Stanley immediately read into that was, hang on, we've suddenly got these lights that are bigger and more powerful. We've suddenly got film stock, which is, you know, two or three times faster than film stock. We've got lenses that can now shoot at 1314, whereas probably on Barry Lyndon, you know, the lenses we were using were probably you know, two eight lenses, you know, I can't well, remember for sure. So it's a massive, yeah. and immediately he, because he was a producer director, yeah. immediately equated that, what that meant in real terms of, of how you can manipulate film in terms of you need less lights, you need less people, it's quicker, etc., etc. You know, now he always staggered him that, lights were getting bigger, film stock was getting faster, lenses were getting faster, but people were using bigger lights and more lights, and he never understood that. And I got that very quickly, what he was talking about, you know. And that's really where I took on from what I learned working with, with him. That and obviously other things like, you know, how to use locations and... Uh, how to get the best out of locations for the best money. Yeah, you can. I mean, I guess I guess the best way to sort of see illustrate that is if you see the kind of TV productions of the 80s. It's like everything's it's like everything's under a fluorescent light. It's that Absolutely. There's Absolutely. No, there's no black is there on TV in the 80s. No, 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 no. No, no, no. <laughs> well, he he he, t he told a very interesting story was when he when he when he did Spartacus. Mm. Or when he took over on Spartacus, I should say, he was a you know, just a you know a paid hand basically, mm. um, and he used to sit in a chair um, and see this beautiful backlit sunlight on you know whatever scene he was shooting, and and of course he had a, 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 a DOP imposed on him by the you know by the studio, um, and he used to sit and watch hours. You say hours. They bring a big truck of lights in. Uh, arc lights and fill in all that beautiful shadow area that had been created by this beautiful backlight and he just used to shake his head in despair <laughs> that, that that they'd never got how to use light this this is this was a hollywood cameraman at that time um you know which is which is again it's how you use natural light you know it's how you know um you know it, it, it's that high key look that hollywood was about Rather than, for example, you know, the modern, more of a modern look, like, you know, like the, the, the you know, the Tony Scott, Ridley Scott look, for, mm. you know, for want of a better analysis of people that sort of were, were working in that way. Um, but people were still coming in using lots of fill and, you know, killing all of the contrast, you know. And it's interesting because because obviously when we when we think about sort of great paintings and and early photography, it was it was mm. it was all about the, the perfect picture is all about how you see it, isn't it? As opposed to mm. being able to mm. see everything, which I think is mm. a kind of mm. it's, it's, yeah, it's a weird schizophrenia sometimes, I yeah, think, isn't it? Well, you know, you you mention uh, great painters and great photographers. If you, you know, you can go back and look at yeah, look at some of the great photographers. I mean, we we still have one or two of the real. Oh, I mean, Wolfgang Szczytski. I'll give you an example. He's over a hundred now. Mm. You look at the stuff he was doing in the twenties and the thirties. His still photography, the clarity 
it's just incredible, you know, given what they were working with then. Mm. But, you know, it's, it's, again, it's manipulation. It's people understanding, you know, what you can get you know, on a given day, in a given light level, et cetera, et cetera. And again, if you go back to painters, great painters, if you think about how they worked, if you think about, you know, the tools that they would use use over and above the brushes and the, and, and the, the paints and, 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 the, and the easel, for example, it was they would invariably work by daylight next to a window because that was their only source of light. Mm. Okay, so therefore the window light, was the natural source of light. Hmm. If it was night light, they would be working with candles. You know? Yeah, we yeah, do yeah. exactly the same same thing today, only we work by daylight, but we would punch a light through the window to, to, to essentiate the daylight. Yeah. And instead of candlelight, we'd be using practical lights. And to me, what's changed? I don't see what's changed. What has, nothing's changed. Don't we just use more modern techniques to get the same results that great painters work by? Now... Now, fast forward. I mean, this is sort of I'm, I'm leaping over quite a lot here when we, to get to to eyes wide shut, um, mm. where you are his director of photography. You are Stanley Kubrick's yeah. director of photography on that film. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, it will amaze listeners who don't know that you, when when asked originally, you said, "Can I sleep on it?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what was your what well, was your what was your reticence to uh, to? Well, because I I I had worked for literally more or less constantly 13 years with Stanley up until The Shining and and also as sort of a kind of an unpaid advisor on um, Full Metal Jacket. Right. It, after the first 13 years, you know, and I go back to what I said at the, the beginning of this podcast about variety of work mm. and being able to move around. It was like a regular job to me mm. and I, I, I never wanted to do a regular job for that long. As much as working with Stanley was probably the most interesting time of my life there is a point where you know after 13 years you, you need to do something else you need to branch out and i and i decided at that time um to um form my own lighting company um which i'd already done before um before the shining in yeah. fact I, I wasn't actually going to work on the shining i was only going to set it up right. and then i was going to jump off of it because I, I had already started my own lighting company. I already had a couple of, you know, young DOPs that I was working with, and I was very excited by that. But, you know, Stanley's a very hard man to leave, you know, when he, you know, when he doesn't want you to go. And, you know, and, and also that loyalty thing kicks in with me um, that, you know, I, I felt that I might be betraying him, even at the expense of myself, you know. So a lot of that, well, a lot of soul searching went on. Um, mm. But after after um, the shine, so I did the shine, and after shine, I, you know, I, there, there was no way I was going to do Full Metal Jacket. Mm. Um, because by this time, I had established a small lighting company that was growing in advertising. Um, and, um, I, you know, I bought a small... Uh, um, building. Oh, uh, um, I did, well, I did a film called uh, "Give My Regards to Broad Street." Okay, yeah, yeah. With yeah. that, with and that was that was really what launched my lighting company, um, and that that enabled me to you know buy more equipment, and then I bought a small building in Kings Cross, and then had a little studio to the side. So I, that was what I was developing. Um, so I did that for. Literally and, until just after Eyes Wide Shut, I had this company, mm. and um, but in 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 between building this company up, 
I got in. I just I, I, I suddenly started to like commercials. I, I got I got offered to like commercials, which is what I did, and I was doing that, you know, very successfully during that period up until just prior to being asked to go on Eyes Wide Shut, mm. and I was very happy doing that. You know, I was making good money. I was in charge of my own destiny, and I knew to go back to work with Stanley would be body and soul again for <laughs> however long. It, I knew it would be, wouldn't be less than a year. Yeah. I knew I wouldn't get any peace, you know, in that sense, you know, because when you, when you work with Stanley, you know, he wants to talk to you, uh, uh, you know, uh, as often as he requires that. And uh, that's not always convenient when you're, you know, when you've got a life. <laughs> you know, so it, it, it wasn't it wasn't like I was coming into it as a fresh faced person, never worked with Stanley before and would, would have done it just for the honour of doing it. I was coming in from a different angle. I was coming in from a, a you know, reasonably, I would say, successful, you know, uh, commercial career uh, as a as a DOP. And um, I didn't really I didn't feel that, that I wanted to give that up mm. it was really the reason why. I needed to think about it. Um, uh, I, I also knew that he had had people that, that, that wrote to him, big name cinematographers from all around the globe that wanted to work on that film for no pay. Really? Yeah, absolutely. And people did that. People had that. So many people wanted to work with Kubrick. It, 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 actors, production designers, you name it. Just that they would do it for no pay. What, what, and, do, you, what uh, do you think? What do you think it was about wanting to work with him? Was was a lot of it just perception, or was it was much of it? They knew they'd gain something by working with him. Well, people that already had a name wouldn't gain any anything from it because they already had a name. So I don't know, you know, and, and clearly money wouldn't have come into it if they. Hmm. But I think it was they either, you know, uh, you know, idolise him as a filmmaker, mm -hmm. which a lot of people, as you well know, do. Is you know, is um, I mean, I think if if you go into, and I know there's less of them around now, the big DVD stores that you get in in LA, hmm. and you go and you look at all of the big name directors that, that are up there have got their films. The section under Stanley Kubrick is probably twice as big as any other director. Mm. You know, so that gives you some idea of, you know, in what esteem he's held, you know, in particularly in America and, 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 and elsewhere. So it doesn't really surprise me that people do that. I mean, I know for a fact that I was speaking to Jack Nicholson on The Shining and, um, and uh, we were just just talking uh, very early days when he came onto it, and I said, "Oh, you know, uh, who, who by the way was absolutely the perfect person for that role." <laughs> but he had got his agent, Jack Nicholson. I think you know just got his second Oscar maybe at that time. Mm. So he was probably number one in the world at that time in terms of male male uh, male actors. And uh, but he got his agent to call Stanley to see if there was a chance to do that film. That you know that gives you some idea. Uh, you know, if someone like Jack Nicholson wanted to work with Stanley, far be it from anyone you know a, a cinematographer or, or whoever that would get the opportunity. You can understand why why it was that they would want to do that. So you know, just to jump back to your question now. So 
So, you know, when he asked me, um, I hadn't seen him for a number of years. I had seen him about a year before. Mm-hmm. He asked me, you know, he, what I didn't know is he had been following my career. This is what I didn't know at this time. Okay. Um, so um, he called me up to, to the house. He called me up one day. I was in my studio in London. He said, how are you? And it's very interesting. I hadn't spoken to Stanley for, I can't remember how many years it was. Nine or ten years, maybe, um, which is a long time not to speak to Stanley, you know, even if you're not working with him, because he would always call up for some reason. It could be some trivial matter. Mm. You know, he's got some people working in his house and they're not doing this. And what would you give him? Say, well, this is what they should be doing and blah, blah, blah. You know, so, you know, so he called me up and said, um, what new lights are around? So I and so and I I used the the the, um, the Dido lights a lot. They're a very small focus light, which I really like. And he always liked small lights, Stanley. You know, low lights and things like that. I said, well, I've got the, these lights. I said, I think you'd probably like them. I said, I think you know, next time you do something, they might be you know something that you'd really like. He said, can you bring some up to the house and show me? And I said, yeah, sure. <laughs> so I said, this was like in the morning. This was like yeah. about uh, uh, ten in the morning. And we had this, by the time we'd got round to talking about lights, we'd already had a three-hour conversation on the telephone that went like five minutes because we were talking about films and talking about this and that. And, you know, he's a very engaging person to talk to on the telephone. And he can talk about anything and everything. And, and we did on this morning. So the phone call was just about, can, he said, can you bring some up at the house? I said, yeah, sure. So he said, what time will you be here? And I said, Stanley, I can't come now. <laughs> I'd, already wasted, I'd already wasted wasted three hours that morning of stuff I could not wasted, but you know things I could have been doing. Yeah, yeah, and sure. I, and and, and I, he said, "Well, why not?" I said, "I'm just going to the gym." And he went really quiet. And he went, "You're going to the gym? Why would you go to the gym?" He couldn't understand that. Why would I go to the gym now? I, I, I said, well, because I go every, you know, every day or every couple of days and I've got my shorts on and I'm, I was going to go before you called me this morning. He said, well, can't you go tomorrow? I said, yeah, I can, but I'm going to miss out. He said, well, okay, go to the gym. What time can you get here? So I said, I'll come up later on this afternoon. <laughs> so I went, I put two cases of these small Dido lights. Um, I think some people call them Dados. I call them Dados, but yeah. um, I put them in my car and went up to see him. And, um, and, um, we went in, 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 in his kitchen and we had some coffee and we talked about everything but these lights. Mm. And then it's now about seven in the evening, seven or eight in the evening, you know. And, uh, so I said, Stanley, do you want to see these lights or not? He went, oh yeah, yeah, let's go over to stable, stable block. We had this stable. So I put some up and showed him what they did. He said, yeah, R- wasn't interested at all. Kind of was interested, but wasn't interested. And I got in my car and, um, and went home. And the next day he called me again. He said, oh, thanks for bringing those up. And it was really great. And, you know, let's talk some more. So that was the end of it. I, I was found myself at Pinewood Studios. He used to use a continuity lady called June Randell, who sadly passed away uh, you, sometime you, you, last year. Are you sensing the subtext here at all? Or are you just No, no. I, I'm just telling, you know, this is, uh, you know, I, I hadn't seen June since The Shining. I don't right. think. I'm walking past one of the studios at Pinewood. She called me over. Larry, 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 come over, come on. You're doing, it wasn't Eyes Wide Shut. It was the film before that, which I think was called The Valici Papers that he okay. put up. He said, you're, you're doing Stanley's film, The Valici Papers. I went, no, no, I'm not. I've never heard, <laughs> I've never heard of that film. She said, yeah, you are. I know you are. 
So I said, June, let me tell you, I'm not. What happened after that was he shelved the Valishi papers because it was a very similar movie to Schindler's List. Okay. And he had spent about $6 million on it, researching it and whatever, but he decided to shelve it. And then he picked up Eyes Wide Shut again, hmm. which he had had, for, as you know, the, the Tromneville novel for many, many years. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, he always wanted to make it. Um, and um, he got in pr- production um, for that. And so then, you know, a year or so later, I get the call. Would you come up to the house again? Can I drive you to this location and blah, 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 blah. And we talked about, you know, how to light the exterior uh, of um, of the mass ball. Mm. Um, and I said, well, I'd do this. I'd put this big light back there, et cetera, et cetera. He went, hmm, interesting. He was, he was driving, by the way. Yeah. We drove back to the house. We had some, spent another few hours just talking and blah, blah, blah. And didn't mention anything about Eyes West Shut, just how would I like that? I go away. About two weeks later, I get another phone call. Um, so, what do you think? What do I think about what? <laughs> what do you think about the film? What film, Stanley? Because at this stage, he hadn't told me the name of it. He hadn't told me, you know, he assumed that I knew. And in actual fact, I didn't. He said, well, the film, Eyes Wide Shut. Do you want to do it? I said, and then I said, no, no, sorry, sorry, prior to that, he, he, Yan had, he'd got Yan, his producer, his brother-in-law, to ask me. Right. And I said to Yan, Yan, I can't tell you now, I need a couple of weeks, I need to sleep on it, I need a couple of weeks, you know, because I knew what it would be like. Then Yan called me again and said, Sandy doesn't understand, why are you not, you know, why are you not talking, why are you not going to do this film? And I said, well, because, you know, I'm just not sure. Then Stanley called me. So he said, Larry, do you want to do it or not? And I said, well, are you asking me to do it? Are you personally asking me to do it, Stanley? And this may sound really strange, this conversation that you and I are having now, but this is exactly how it happened, you know. And I said, he said, well, do you want to do it? I said, well, are you asking me? And it was a bit like that. It was a bit bit of a standoff. I said, okay, I'll tell you, I'll let you know tomorrow, Stanley, which is kind of basically what I did. And in the end, of course, the rest is consigned to history. Now I did it. You know. I mean, in, in, at that moment, was you ever going to say no then? Or was, was... Yeah, I was. Really? I, mean, so... I, I think so. I think it was a bit like The Shining thing. You know, it, it was a bit, the, it was only the fact that he had personally asked me, Yeah. you know, to do it, as opposed to asking Yan, you know, who was it was obviously getting a hard time from Stanley because I, he hadn't got mm. the answer from me. But it's the very fact that when Stanley gets on the phone and he talks to you about someone, and he, you know, and he said to me, he said to me, Larry, do you, you realise this? What this would do to your career? And and because I'd always had this relationship with Stanley, I said, Stanley, I've got a career. Mm. You know, I'm not. I'm. You know, if I do this film, the only reason I will do it is because you personally have asked me, as uh, you know, if you like, as a friend. Of course. As opposed to, I had to go for an agent and had to have an interview or etc. And that's the meaning. That is the the, the power of Stanley Kubrick, mm. if you like, yeah. to get to get somebody on board one of his projects because he knew he he knew by talking to me that. I wasn't anywhere near 100% sure that I wanted to do it. And he knew that. And, and, but with Stanley, he respected that. You know, he respected the fact that I didn't just say yes for the sake of doing a film and getting a credit working with Stanley Kubrick. So how, how went, I mean, and there, there in the, there's a, there's the massive thing. It's sort of with that, with that knowledge 
in your mind and going and, mm. and but obviously you knowing Stanley as well as you do mm. at this point how did you discuss the working relationship with you as is now his director of photography for the first time I mean, no, you've worked in that capacity but yeah. this is now officially you are is how did you because obviously you want to do your best work you just don't want yeah. you, you don't want to be just on set doing the yeah. lighting for Stanley Kubrick do you exactly exactly and there, and there was another part of the dilemma go on be, because if you look back to 2001 mm. 2001 Jeffrey Unsworth fantastic cinematographer mm-hmm. obviously had a hard time on that with Stanley that's the last time that Stanley used if you like an already established director of photography um when he did clockwork orange um he used john john alcock another fantastic cinematographer but he used john because john was his focus puller on on uh, 2001 and john did extra photography and stanley knew with john he had someone he could work with he could mold he could you know manipulate if you like yeah um, and then therefore John did uh, Clockwork Orange, obviously under the wing of Stanley and obviously would have to do things that Stanley wanted to be done. Then he went away from um, um, Clockwork Orange and became a cinematographer in, in his own right. And then obviously came back, excuse me, and did um, Barry Lyndon. Mm-hmm. Again, working always. I mean, when you work with Stanley, you work with him, but you work for him. And if Stanley wants to do something, you do it. Right. That's the bottom line. So John was happy to go along with that, you know, and he did Barry Lyndon. I was surprised that he came back to do The Shining because he was a very established cinematographer by that time. But you, you see my point is, he, you know, he started as the focus puller, you know, under the wing of Stanley. Yeah. Okay. And after The Shining, the same thing happened to Doug Milson. Doug did extra photography on The Shining after John left and then was brought on under Stanley's wing to do Full Metal Jacket. Great opportunity. You know, it's what John did. It's what Doug did. I was coming from a different angle. I was already a successful commercial uh, cinematographer at that stage and was very making good money and was very content with my life. Mm. And I didn't want to give that up. And I knew I would have to give that up. You know, um, so I talked with Stanley, you know, about that. And he said, Larry, have what cameras you want. You're the DOP. Do what you want. But I knew that wouldn't be the case. <laughs> you know, I knew that wouldn't be the case. And, and of course, it wasn't the case. Yeah, I did have a, an input. And I did used to argue my corner on on using certain techniques. I mean, you know, I don't know if you're aware, but we forced developed the whole of that movie. Yeah, it was it two points. Or two, two, two stops. Two and stops, yeah. I was fought with him every day about that because, you know, with modern film stocks and especially someone who knew about film like Stanley did, um, I never thought that that was necessary. And it's not a science, you know, two or three seconds in the bath a bit longer or two or three seconds in the bath uh, too short. You get a different, you know, you get a different look. And, um, you know, and I knew that would be, a you know, potentially a problem. And we did have, you know, problems with that sort of going along. Not not too many, to be fair, but we had it. So I thought with him about that. And I would, you know, you know, when, you know, we would dis- heavily discuss, shall I say, you know, uh, aspects of it. And but, you know, I, I, I was strong about that. I didn't, you know, I felt very strongly about, you know, that we, we shouldn't be doing that. We should be doing this. But, you know, ultimately... Um, you know, there's only ever going to be one winner in, a, in, in those kind of discussions. So, you know, it's about having the right to, to, to try to change his mind. 
you know, say, on, on a more wider point, Larry, for, the, for those people who are aspiring to do it, mm. what would be your advice for the budding DOP cinematographer to, to make that work? Even when, you, like you say, sometimes only one person can be right. Mm. How do you manage that relationship to make it best for you? What, what well, I think it de- well, I think it's, it depends on, you know, individuals' personality. Some people can are very, very good at, you know, at, at being able to, you know, stay in a, a in a hostile environment, mm. even though they're not in, they're not enjoying it. You know, um, and other people have a, a have a lesser threshold, and they say, you know what, I, I can't agree. I don't want to be unhappy. I don't want to fall out with you. Therefore, I'm going to leave. So. Mm. Some, D- some DOPs leave. Some DOPs just knuckle down and have a horrendous time, but just get the project done. Just, mm. just finish it, you know. And it really de- depends on the personality. I think I'm of the middle, too. I'm one of those ones that, you know, try to be professional enough to stay on a project, even though you're not enjoying it and you're mm. not getting the results that you, that, that you want, mm. but to try and influence it in a different way. Luckily to me that it, that doesn't, that hasn't happened very often. And I've more often than not been able to um, express myself um, with the way I work. So, so I think it's up to individuals, how they deal with it. They, as I say, their personality will drive a lot of it. You know, if they've got a really temperate, uh, a personality mm. they're more likely to be able to work with across the board with all kinds of directors good bad or indifferent you know if you're a bit more volatile then i think you have to sort of choose the directors very carefully that you work with mm. now I, I want to ask you a question that's come from a, a friend of mine uh, john mm-hmm. baker a director who, yeah. who, who had a specific question about uh, eyes wide show yeah. Um, his his and, and and I'm just reading from his note now. He gave me his favourite movie scene ever is the ritual scene in Eyes Wide Shut. Right. And he said, "Is it is it true that that, that 25 minutes of footage was cut from the ritual scene? And um, if so, what did that contain? And then just generally, how long did that ritual scene take to shoot?" Well, it was shot in various parts. When you say the ritual, are you talking about the mask, the yeah, mask yeah. ball, where they're around in the circle? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, well, but, so that was shot in one part mm. of the country, and where they got, where we're going through the house, and he's watching people, you know, watching couples and and and, and uh, etc. etc. That was shot at a different time in a different part of the country. Wow. That was shot somewhere out in Guildford, that place. But the mask ball was shot in, in, a, in a house up in the north of England. I can't exactly remember the name of the, the place. So that, that took us about, um, that particular sequence took us, we shot that over a period of about three weeks. Now, one of the things that, 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 that stands out in terms of the, the, uh, the sort of natural beauty of the film overall mm. is this, this lovely contrast with the yellow tinge mm. Mm. and the contrasting mm. blue light that comes in through the windows. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. I think, I mean, as far as my, I mean, this is just my, me watching it, it's like that, th- those, those very sort of obvious lighting choices mm. sort of, they culminate in... Um, in, 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 there's a moment towards the end where Tom Cruise's face is half lit blue, yeah, like he's wearing like a Phantom of the Opera mask, you know, yeah. in keeping with the rest of the the masks of the film. Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming that's no accident that I'm I'm seeing it like that, is it? No, I mean basically, <clears throat> what happened was from the very very first scene when I was pre lighting 
uh, Bill's apartment, Tom Cruise, uh, Nico's apartment. Yeah. Um, I was, um, I was just experimenting, experimenting with the light coming through the window, the sort of night blue light. Yeah. And, 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 you know, blue light, it tends to be not as blue as, uh, sorry, moonlight tends to be not as blue as people think it is. It tends to be a bit more neutral. It's, it's more like a white light. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. the but, but the perception of blue light uh, of moonlight, sorry, is blue. Mm. You know, it's what we you know, it's it's how we see it. And so I I put this uh, I put this uh, full blue on a um, on a tungsten light, which you know it effectively makes it daylight. Um, and then I put a double full blue on, which made it very theatrical. Because yeah. that's what really the lighting was. It was there was nothing natural about that. It was it was more theatrical. And in in a way, not by accident. I had done this before, but yeah. but kind of by accident for this particular scene. I just but and and, and the reason that that happened because we were using tungsten lights and they were very very hot. Mm. What happens with the blue? It starts to burn out, and so it loses its you know it, 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 its original. Uh, 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 blue and it starts to go for example instead of being say for example 5,000 6,000 kelvins it might drop down to 4,000 kelvins which is more like a half blue so halfway between tungsten and daylight wow right so what you do just for speed you just put another blue over it so what i would actually <laughs> done was only because i was just testing looks you know yeah, yeah, yeah. so i put another blue over the original blue which made it about one and a half blues and then i might i did that i think i did that again and you get back to sort of back to a double blue and stanley saw it and he went i said i said don't worry about that that's just because i've been he said yeah but it's, it's an interesting look i said yeah but it's you know, it's theatrical, you know, and he went, yeah, but it's interesting. And Stanley used to have this saying where about, where he always used to say, is it real or is it interesting? You know, and it's, a, it, it, and, and, and his theory was, forget real, it's interest, interesting is better, you know. So we, that's how that kind of developed and we kept that look all the way through. Plus, with the force developing, mm. it kind of ch- changed it a little bit uh, uh, as well, you know, so you've got this really kind of, in a way, an odd look, I would say, you know. Um, no, 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 the highlights are, are, are gorgeous, and then yeah, the, the, blacks, yeah. the blacks in it are, yeah, are something yeah. else, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. So that was basically how that came about. It was it was partly by accident. Now, you know, if I, if I fast forward to the staircase scene, when they go to uh, um, the party, the first party that they're getting ready for, yeah. you know that curtain of light? Yeah that came down and that was something I was really strong about using but Stanley never thought that they would be strong enough and you know we wouldn't get enough stop and the focus it would affect the focus or, or whatever um, um, but ultimately in the end we just doubled up and trebled up to get the you know the, the, the luminance that much greater but that was something he was really adamant against using you know and I think that was a, for me that's one of the nicest you know, visual looks of the film when he's coming down that staircase. Mm. Well, I mean, I mean, all of it really, in a way, because you, you, your your base materials, as were the rooms you're having to shoot in. Yeah, they're, they're quite ordinary rooms, aren't they? I mean, were you, yeah. in, in so much that we're used to seeing them. I mean, they're grand yeah. because they're yeah. big and stuff. But yeah, yeah, the no, light, exactly. The, the lighting and feel is what makes the film feel yeah. interesting, isn't it? Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. Yeah, it's how you use the space and how you use the uh, the production design, you know, etc. You know, that that whole collaboration is 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 really very very important, I think. 
Now, going fast forward in, in, in your sort of time a bit from, from Eyes Wide Shut, um, Nicholas Winding Refn, mm-hmm. which you've done, is, is um, three films I, I can see. Yeah, yeah, I did. Fear X was the first film I did with him. And Bronson. And then uh, Bronson, and then Only God Forgives, yeah. No, Only God Forgives, if I can. If mm. I can. Before, before I go into it, I just, I mean, the fascinating thing that I always find when I listen to um, Nicholas talk about his work is mm. and I don't mean that he's talking to me. I just mean interviews and mm. stuff. Mm. Is is his colour blindness? Yeah, yeah. Where, how soon into the process of knowing him or working with him were you were you made aware of this? And how how do you mitigate it in in your communication well, with him? He told me when we when we first ever met. He said he said I'm absolutely colour blind. There's only one or two colours that I can can see. Mm. I said oh, really? You know, I, I said, oh, okay. I didn't. You know, I didn't. I took it on board. I didn't think about it too much, you know, because, you know, when I did um, Fear X, that was his first movie, really. He'd done um, Pusher. Yeah. Um, but he hadn't done anything to do. And, I, you know, he was a, an, a, you know, he was just a young um, director who clearly didn't um, have a real understanding of cameras and, um, and, um, and lighting to that, to that, to that extent. Yeah. You know, um, and I just, I, you know, I just went about my work like I do. I just, <laughs> I just lit lit this set like that, and I lit this set like that, and that was it. I, there was no di- real discussion. There wasn't any discussion on Fear X right. at all, you know, because it was a short schedule and it was it was busy. So you know, um, but Fear X wasn't really a film where, <clears throat> you know, uh, where, where where his um, lack of uh, or, or his color blindness would have. Um, would have impacted him too much. It was a fairly straightforward set. It wasn't a, you know, it wasn't a saturated film in any sense. No, no. Whereas Bronson was, and so was obviously Eyes Wide Shut. Only God Forgives. Oh, sorry, uh, Only God Forgives. Yeah, no, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, it, the, the reds and the blues in Only God mm-hmm. Forgives mm-hmm. are, it almost feels like the, um, what's it, I don't know how you describe it, the kind of, um, the neon kind of monk, demon monkey face that's above mm-hmm. the ring. It's mm. almost like the colour palette for the film. Yeah, yeah. Well, it it, it was. That was something that, that that we put in to to link that. Um, mm. uh, again, it was um, uh, in a way something that came around by accident. The, the but the actual boxing ring mm. um, had um, very minimal lighting in it, but it was it was red. They had a lot of. Um, you know, there was some red fluorescence mm. and um, nowhere near enough. So um, what I did was I put a load more of these up as if they were naturally in the stadium. And I just put red on them, uh, a double a double red on them. And then that be, kind of became the theme, you know. Um, um, and then the face came out. I mean, Nicholas likes red anyway. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. But I just, I just um, it's one of the colours he does see. But And I just used that as a theme. And I thought, well, this is actually might as well be something that we might use, particularly in the boxing ring. And I just made more of it. <clears throat> and every time we needed to introduce another light source, I introduced another, I introduced another red light. Mm. Um, and, um, and then the, the back of that uh, um, boxing ring, which is where the, more or less the opening scene is, where they're, uh, is it, I forget what the opening scene is now. Do we start in the back? On your yeah, sat, we sat. We sat. Come out the back room, don't we? The camera. Right. Okay. So that that back room literally was how it was. It was just you know those um, 
concrete um, things so, that you build walls with in gardens that have got shapes in yeah, them, yeah, yeah. you know that you just buy from home base or one of these places it was that, that's all it was there was a few partitions of that that were already there and a couple of benches you know for the the the, the boxes the tie boxes to get chains in there was no set there and and so it was like what do you do with this you know how can you light this there's nothing so i just used those shapes there and there was the back wall, the exterior wall had a few of them coming from the top. And I, you know, used them. I, I used a sort of more of an amber light there. Mm. Though. There was there was red in there as well. Um, but I used more of an amber light. So, you know, it, again, it was something that I used in those first two days because there was, you know, China's just trying to give it some some atmosphere, trying to give it some shape because there was no shape there. You know, and I, you know, I tried to use, you know, light to give the back room some personality. And then literally, you know, because there was very little money for production design on the film, I kind of just took that theme around. So everywhere I went, everywhere there was a boring set or no set, shall I say, I just used a very theatrical form of lighting, which was more or less what I did on Bronson as well. Again, there was a very, it was a very low budget film and I just used you know, interesting orifices to shine lights through. So when, uh, so when, when, you, when we're looking at the, um, say the shoot up scene in the, in the bar where the assassins come in, try and, yeah. try and shoot the, I think it's the police, isn't it? Um, yeah. And Wait, in, in the bar. Wait, yeah. Wait, yeah. Wait. Yeah. Is that, is that, Oh yes, 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 yes. Sorry. Yes, yes, yes. So right, that is yeah. that, is that on location or is that? That's location. No, that's location. That was an actual cafe. See, that was that, an actual bar. Because the serenity you've got that you've established mm. in in what you frame and what you've mm. lit mm. makes you feel like it's a studio. Yeah, no, it's not. It was all just natural. Throw it together <laughs> as quickly as you can. Lighting, you know. Is it? Is it? Am I right in thinking that you've said me on, on your own record? I said it's probably one of the toughest movies you, yeah. you've ever had to make. Yeah, I, it, it was hard uh, because it was eight weeks of nights, um, oh, and then we, we got and then we got into doing six days hmm. and then it was like 30 every night was never the temperature was never less than mid 30s sometimes up to 40 degrees um so it's very very tiring when you're just you're just only surviving uh, existing in night hmm. uh, you know you become nocturnal you know as a person and and that's that's actually not very healthy i can say how do you not go stir crazy well, you do, and, and I did. I said, that's why it was the hardest movie. It, you know, it, you know. It, it, at the end, I was just, you know, I'd got quite sick on it. I kept getting bad throats, and all because of this whole, you know, this whole um, working at night, and also the, the the theme of the story, as you know, it's quite it's quite gruesome. You know, if you were working at night and doing something, you know, like, for example, a musical, <laughs> yeah. you'd probably be, it's more uplifting. So the subject matter didn't help, you know. I mean, I, I, I never thought about that before, but you, you set in a scene, I mean, and like you say, some of the, some of the moments are, mm. are extreme, aren't they? Yeah, so, very. I mean, and, and Nicholas celebrated that when he was promoting the film. Mm. Um, but when you're, when you're lighting and shooting that, is, is, mm. how, how does, how does you, how does your, um, your, your ideas, shape when when you're when you're being asked to sort of like something's a visceral as compared to just say you know here's some people in a room talking let's make it interesting but obviously when the focus is of something like i'm thinking of when the the, the person's getting stabbed in the chair and things like that mm. where obviously mm. all the focus for the audience is on them isn't it mm. in a way. yeah yeah no absolutely well 
I think when you pick a location like the shootout, for example, mm. um, you know, if you know that part of the world, it's, you know, that it's, it's, you get millions of fluorescent lights in all of the bars. It's just the most boring, they're the most boring places to sit and eat, eat those street food restaurants, you know, mm-hmm. and there's far too much light. You know, so the first thing you do when you go, how do you make this look interesting? You turn off 90% of them. And then you just cut down. Well, when what I did there was, I just cut down, you know, for example, if they were four foot fluorescents on the ceiling, mm. I just used to, you know, black wrap them, tape them up and just use six inches of it. So it, it was like a, you know, a, just a single source of light just to try and give it some shape. Otherwise, it's just boring and flat. Mm. And then, you know, and then use the exterior, link the exterior part of that with, you know, with a bit of street lighting and, you know, maybe... Pop, pop, pop a little light in somewhere if there was a dark space and the rest of it in a way you know with modern modern um, uh, cameras and modern uh, wasn't film on that it was digital um you know it you know if you manipulate it's it, it, at the end of the day it's, it's how you manipulate the images you're shooting mm. you know to look the way that you think that they should look to look interesting to, to look pleasing to the eye I mean, it is, I mean, I just, I mean, as, as, as it, it arrested me watching, um, Only God Forgives for the first time. Mm. It, the, cause, cause also you've got the other challenge, which is there's not a lot of talking going on, is there? So you're, no, this film no. is being judged on what you put through the camera, isn't it? Yeah. It, no, exactly. So, uh, and I, and of course, um, uh, when I go back to what I was saying earlier on about having freedom to work, yeah. I just did on that film what, you know, what I wanted to do. I just tried to make it look as interesting as it could because I knew the whole narrative mm. was very was very short and very small and um, you know and what would help carry the film mm. and um, and, um, and 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 so I thought the lighting might so that was you know more or less why I sort of made the decisions I made. Now, I mean, it's, it, it, I'm not going to ask you to be the judge, you know, be the judge on any of this, but it's interesting that you've worked, you've worked with Kubrick and now you're working with someone that's sort of, I guess, in the, in the media, in the entertainment media is classed as sort of a young pretender to, yeah. to Kubrick. I mean, yeah. as a, yeah. I guess, I guess a bit, a bit maniac, a bit of a, a bit of a maniac in a film sense, not, not, yeah. not, in, yeah. a, not in any other sense. Yeah. Um, do, do, yeah. do you, do you think that, 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 that comparison's fair on on wind and reffing. Never mind, <laughs> is, it, is it? Is it? No, true? I don't think it is fair. I, I think they're, they're completely different hmm. um, animals. I mean, um, Stanley was very um, um, very pragmatic. Very, um, you know, the time he had to do. He, you know, he worked on his stuff for years. You know, hmm. Where, whereas Nicholas has um, tends to work on very short low budget films you know impact films if you like yeah. you, you know and i don't think you have that kind of um, possibility of working i know nicholas lo- loves a lot of the stuff that stanley did and the way his compositions and things like that but they're very you you know they're very different totally different people the way they work um um you know and the, and and i think obviously you know the, the results that they end up mm-hmm. going for or getting I guess, I guess, in a simple sense, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a writer, a screenwriter, not a, mm. not a mm. technician in terms of how mm. you shoot a movie. Mm. But from from a viewing point of view, it's that I think it's sometimes it's just simply that that regular use of say centre perspective 
which mm. I think obviously Kubrick did brilliantly um, yeah. in, in, in his films. And I think Widen Reference fond of using it too. And it, and it, it, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a frame that's not always, it's not always done well. So when it is, it kind of, I guess it always yeah. comes back to Kubrick, doesn't it? I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I forget who said this. It, uh, it might've been Steven Spielberg. I can't remember, but somebody said the thing about Kubrick is that Kubrick copies nobody. <laughs> and he sets his own style, yeah. you know, because when Stanley goes off and doesn't make a movie for five years, yeah, he watches stuff. Of course, he watches everything, you know, from, you know, he used to watch The Bill, you know, on TV. Can you believe it? You know, he used no, to find it no. into, he, he, you know, he watched everything. He watched, you You want to talk to him about sport? He knew everything about every sport. He was, mm. if there was a sport he was interested in, he talked, he, he was interested in cricket, you know, um, you know, he was a, he, he just used to watch everything, but he never, uh, you know, you can't say he, he, whatever he was watching never influenced him because you never know subconscious, in your subconscious how, how you get influenced. But, you know, he wouldn't be thinking, oh, I read this Vogue book and I saw this beautiful model, therefore Nicole's going to be wearing this stuff because she was kind of, a, you know, some of the things Stanley said, oh, this dress will look good on you. She said, really? You know, it's really clearly not what she wanted to wear. Mm. But Stanley never worried about that. He didn't care about that. So he just made his own films the way he wanted. Fast forward to one of his movies coming out. Everybody was looking what Stanley was doing and trying to copy. Right, so it's quite, okay. it's quite an interesting dynamic, isn't it? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. You now, know? I was going to say that segues into nicely to you. You've, you've now picked up the director's baton. Yeah. And you've made a film called Trafficker. Correct, yeah. So that's a, that's quite a long while down the road, given your experience. I mean, I counted, what, 20 feature films on your cinematographer, yeah. and, that doesn't, yeah. and that's, yeah. that's just a cinematographer. You know, that's not yeah. all the films you've worked on, and then countless yeah. adverts and stuff. Was yeah. director something that was always on the cards, or...? Have you? Did you find a project that found you, as it were? Or well, I, tell, I, I used to direct um, for a, a, f a few years a lot of television commercials. So, okay. you know, I, I did go the directing route, but but you know, it was never you know I never wanted it to for it to be my day job. My day job, I'm a cinematographer. I enjoy it. You know, I'm comfortable doing it. You know, and. I don't get too phased about it, or very rarely anyway. Um, um, uh, directing was always something that I was going to do if I got the right project. And I had an offer. I've had various offers over the years, and I was very close to, you know, doing a couple of movies, which in the end I pulled out of because they just weren't, They, you know, from what I read and what I set up and what I was prepping, they didn't end up, being those kind of movies so therefore i thought well i've got nothing to gain here and everything to lose so mm. you know I'm, I'm not and was never desperate to be a movie director i just always wanted to do something if the right story came along and i had this story that i developed called a hot and top venus which i was going to make mm. i like okay I, I like true stories i like historical stories okay. um and so i had this story um that i wanted to make which I'd been working on and, and, and had more or less had the money to make. And then a, a French Tunisian director made 
made a story, not the same story, but about the same person. Got you. Um, and, um, and, and, and anyway, so I pulled the plug on that because it's crazy, you know, to do that. Uh, I might revisit that at some time because that film never got shown and it was made in a, I saw, I've since seen the film and it was nothing like my film. So, you know, I'm, I am prepared to pick that up again. So in the meantime, I'd read a script called um it wasn't called trafficker then it was called something else i can't remember by a writer that i'd worked with i did a film in malaysia called the blue mansion right and the writer on that was a writer called ken quack and he said i've got this film would you like to read it tell me what you think about it and i read it and it was a true story and uh, i said ken i think it's a great story i said um he said well i've given it to to uh, to ken to um to glenn gooey who who did who directed Blue Mansion, and um, to see if he wants to do it. I said, well, it's a great story. I think, you know, um, I said I knew a little bit about the story, but I didn't realise it was quite as intricate as it was. Cut to me giving up on um, the hot and top Venus. Yeah. I then speak to Ken, and I said, Ken, what happened to, you know, your film? Um, and he said, oh, Glenn's still got it. I said, well, is he ever going to make it? I said, I think I might be able to get the money to make this. So he said, I'm going to ask him. And he, he, I said, well, ask it. No, I said, I'll ask him today. And he called Glenn up because they both live in Singapore. And um, Glenn said, no, I'm, no, no I'm, you know, I'm not going to do anything with it. So he gave it back to the writer. And then I had an agreement with the writer. Mm. And um, I sort of, because I, I, I passionately believed in the story. You know, it's a, it's a story about capital punishment. And I don't make any views about capital punishment, but, you know, it, it was a story that ultimately is about capital punishment, but it's not about capital punishment. It's a story about two brothers who who leave Vietnam in the 80s with their family. They were three and five years of age and their family are on their way to Malaysia and the horrific things that happened to them um, on the way. And I, and I just thought, wow, this is just such a morally compelling story mm. and also as as we now see with what's gone and very topical so uh, i got the money and um it was a very low budget i shot it in thailand i used um bangkok for vietnam well not bangkok i used parts of thailand for vietnam um, um australia which is really where the film takes place yeah and um you know i made it there and um Hopefully you'll um, get a chance to see it to, um, soon. So, so answer your question. No, it wasn't a driving force. Uh, it's not necessarily something I may even do again. I've had a, an offer to do something else, um, and I may resurrect the hot and top Venus. Um, so, it, uh, you know, it's on stuff that's you know that's out there's on the back burner, and I, I could pick up at any time. You know. No, so so at the moment it's it's finished and it's waiting for distribution. Yeah, is that where we're? Yeah, at? exactly. I'm just waiting to try and get a distribution. And it's called it's called Trafficker. It's, yeah, it's called Trafficker. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So when when we get news, we'll 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 let the Britflix. Uh, yeah. Know. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when there's trailers, you can see the trailers on um, IMDb and YouTube. And um, if you, I think if you Google Trafficker, there, there's a there's a trailer. It's a fairly old trailer. We we, we will bring some new trailers out soon. But it gives you a, at least a flavour of what the film's about. And, and Nicholas Wenner Refn exec produced it, didn't he? No, they were. That was no, that was originally what was going to happen. Okay. But I, I think what happened was, uh, which was one of the reasons I ended up being a director producer in the end. Um, was that they were so 
they they, they had so much work still to do to get um, Only God Forgives into Cannes. They were trying to get it. They desperately wanted to get it into Cannes and to try to sell it. And there was a lot of post-production they were doing. And in the end, it was easier for them you know, not to do it. And so I took that role over, basically. But that was always going to be the case, yeah. Now, one last question, which is kind of a fundamental of where, I guess, cinemas moved from, from when you started, mm. is the, the old um, film versus HD digital. Um, yeah. And I asked that because I watched a, I watched a seminar, you were, a panel you were on on uh, YouTube, <coughs> and somebody mm. asked the question there. And mm. you said the positive was something like, it, it gave access to more filmmakers to make film cheaply, to make a yeah. film cheaper. Yeah. And then you went, but I can't think of anything else. That's so, right. So is that, is that you, say, without saying it, is that you being firmly in the analogue film camp? Yes. And the reason Go on. I say that is, is because it's like, the, you know, the, the, the king's new, new clothes. <laughs> if enough, enough people say it, enough people believe it. And, and people jumped on board this whole digital thing when it was in its infancy, when it was terrible. It was awful. Yeah. Uh, it's much, much, much better now. And I'm not anti-digital, by the way. I want, yeah, I want yeah. everybody to understand that. I think it's a, I think the Alexa camera is a wonderful camera, and it's something I would always carry, given the budget. But I'd always have two film cameras as my main source of capture, and, and an Alexa for doing other stuff. It's a tool that we should be using, mm. and it's fantastic. And it's getting much closer to film, but it ain't film. And the end result does not look like film. And so, therefore, people got on this bandwagon about how it was cheaper how it was better – both of those statements are lies. You can still shoot on film cheaper than you can shoot on digital. And Kodak have got a rollout system where you can get two film cameras. You can get uh, a post-production deal. You can get a, develop, a developing deal in terms of getting your stock developed on a, on a day-to-day basis on a very good budget. And a film camera now, they give them to you to use because digital cameras are very expensive to rent you know so it's a you know it's i i I hate it when these things happen Mm. based on anything but the truth and you know the reality is that the look of film is still much more forgiving and a better look a better end result in my opinion than digital is is that because is is that something about the film does that as as a part of its process, whereas yes. digital you manipulate yes. it after the fact, as it were. Yes, exactly that. And there's the thing. I, I th- I'm going to uh, say something now that will probably offend a lot of um, <laughs> cinematographers that shoot only on digital. What's happened to the cinematographer in the modern era is become semi skilled. It's not skilled like it was in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s where exposure was really important and balance and where cinematographers knew there are. It's all so post-production based now that, you know, you can take a badly shot film and you can make it into a more interesting film in post-production, whereas that should all be captured in camera. But you see, that, that sounds like a set that there's a similar... It's not, it's not, not as rudimentary as you were saying, but I've heard... People who were taught to shoot on film full stop mm. um, are more organised and know what they want to achieve. Mm. Whereas there's a, there's, a, there's a habit now that's snuck into film digital, mm. which is this idea that we shoot and shoot and shoot, mm. and hopefully we have what we need in the camera. Mm. Because that's we, a 
that's exactly how directors use the digital uh, format now. Um, uh, you know, there's no doubt about it. Shooting on digital as a, as a cinematographer makes your life so much easier on the one hand right. because there's so many things you don't you just don't have to worry about mm. you know um where it makes your life far more difficult is that everybody's got an opinion of what they're seeing on a screen right okay so you've so got all the monitors around the set and nobody's ever watching the right monitor they all watch the, the video playback monitors which don't you know if you're shooting in low light levels don't read it very well they say oh it's too dark it's this it's that nobody's watching the dit monitor which is really where the heart and soul of capturing digital, you know, goes, where you know what you're getting. So you get all these people that have got, an, got a view, got an idea. So all the producers now, wanted to, you know, whereas before, uh, you know, with film, they didn't know what they were getting to the next day. And sometimes the next day, even for cinematographers that knew their way around film, it was you had some wonderful experience because you got stuff that were even better than you would imagine you can get. Sometimes you've got stuff that wasn't as good, but that's the magic. That's the magic of it, you know, but, but you know, that's been taken away now. Everybody wants, you know, to know um, what they're getting. Now, people say this to me now, go back to a Kubrick now. People say, say, well, for sure, you know, Stanley was so, you know, he embraced technology. He did embrace technology if it worked in the way he wanted to shoot. And people now have got this opinion that he'd have definitely shot on digital. I can tell you now, in my opinion, 100%, if he was making a movie tomorrow, he would test digital better than anyone's ever tested it before in every shape or form. And his conclusion would be, yeah, it's good, it's interesting, but it's not film. Well, I think on that bombshell... Um, I feel I can't go any I can't go anywhere else with that, and I'd love I'd love to end there. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much for your time. Mm. Um, you when, when we get a release date for Trafficker, it'd be yeah. great to have you on just to talk about that film specifically, yeah. if you'd like. Yeah, I'd love uh, to. That'd love be, to. So, be brilliant. Yeah. Well, look, yeah. I, I can't thank you enough for uh, lending okay. your time to the British podcast and okay. telling us these wonderful stories about okay. your experiences. Okay, well, it's a pleasure, and I hope, I hope your uh, your listeners enjoy it. I hope I didn't ramble on too much. And that's how. The interview went down. Many thanks to Larry for uh, coming on the podcast. And if you enjoyed that, or you're a fan of the Britflix podcast in general, please take time to leave us a review in iTunes. It really helps draw an audience to the podcast. Thank you. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes, and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover South Carolina. 